Hi, everybody. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. To the Chinese speakers joining us today, hey, now, now, in the Christian faith, there are certain concepts that are central. They are foundational. And for those of us who are Christ followers, understanding these concepts, well, they're, they're kind of an important part of, of, of our faith and about following Jesus. But even for those of us who are not yet Christ followers, we're just kind of checking things out. Learning these concepts can help you make that decision. And so here at Blockhawk, every now and then, we, we teach these concepts. And so today is one of those Sundays. Today, we're going to tackle some of the most important concepts in the Christian faith. And we are doing it as part of a nine-week series called Galatians, the letter that saved the church. Two weeks ago, I kicked off the series, and I gave you some of the background story of, of the letter, right? Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia because there was a threat to the entire Jesus movement in the first century. And if you remember, the problem was the church began as being kind of all Jewish, right? They were all one ethnicity. And so when God made it clear to the church leaders, hey, Gentiles, non-Jewish ethnic people are going to come into the church. Well, some of the Jewish Christian leaders said, hey, you know, these Gentiles coming in, they should have to become Jews first. They should, well, they should get circumcised. They should eat kosher. They should keep Sabbath. You know, it's basic tribalism. You know, to be one of us, you got to act like one of us. Well, Paul said, no. Paul said, you know what? If we require Gentiles to become Jews in order to follow Jesus, that destroys the gospel and destroys the mission of the church. Wow, that sounds like an ancient argument from the first century, right? How can it have any relevance to Madison in the 21st century? Well, except it absolutely does. We saw that last week, right? Paul started his letter by telling the story about what happened in the church in Antioch. That where tribalism and ethnic identity put so much pressure on people that some people started to act in a way contrary to their belief. They started going against their conscience. And I'm not just talking about people, right? It's just anybody. No, we were talking about Peter, Apostle Peter, the guy who knew Jesus the best. Tribal pressure got to him. He broke, he went against his conscience, and he did things that hurt people that hurt the community in the church in Antioch. That was last week. So Pastor Chris covered the story that ran from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 14. If you missed it, check it out online. Today, Paul stops telling stories. Today, Paul gets into arguments. And so he now brings out his one of the big, strong arguments for why the church absolutely should not require Gentiles to become Jews first. And he does it in a passage that's usually packed with foundational concepts. And because it's so packed, we have to take it slowly. So last week, Pastor Chris spent like, you know, covered like a chapter and a half. Today, I'm doing like seven verses. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, paper or your, on your smart devices, uh, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're looking at verses 15 through 21. Now, as we left off last week, Paul was talking to Peter. And, uh, and the passage we're looking at today is either Paul continuing to talk to Peter or his transitioning and talking to the Galatians directly. Uh, scholars don't agree, but frankly, either way, it doesn't matter because this passage serves as a theological center for the letter. We're going to look first at verses 15 and 16, and I want you to just want to give you a heads up. 
Because of the subject matter, uh, we're going to do a deeper dive into the original language. We're going to look into Greek a little bit more. And um, I hope you will hang with me, okay? Really, please hang with me because the payoff is well worth it. Verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now you see that, right? A bunch of phrases that are repeated over and over again. Right? We have justified showing up three times. We have works of the law showing up three, time, three times. And we have faith showing up three times. So what we have is, are these three phrases. Justified, works of the law, and faith. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going we're to begin the talk by covering each one of these. We're going to begin with justified. What does Paul mean by justified? Well, first off, okay, huge topic. Debates over the meaning of this word have literally changed world history. I'm not exaggerating, okay? Th there's been books upon books upon books written on this. I can't cover this topic. I can't even give you a survey of all the approaches. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to present what I think is the best way uh, to, to look at this that will incorporate a lot of the scholarly opinion. And if you have more questions, you want to talk more about this, come to the webinar tomorrow night. So what does Paul mean by justified? Well, first off, it's a Greek word. Uh, the verb is dikaiao. And, and in the Bible, there's also the, uh, the, the, the adjective uh, dikaios, and then there is the noun dikaiosune. So what you notice is that all three words, they have the same root, the dikai-a root. They are related. If you're a Greek reader, you would immediately notice that these three words are connected. The problem is when we translate into English. So we have righteous for dikaios, we have righteousness for dikaiosune, but we don't have a good verb for this. Right, so we go with justify. And when you do that, you lose the connection. I mean, look, the English translations are great, okay? They, they do their best. But English and Greek sometimes just don't match up perfectly. So some scholars, they're getting a little creative. They, they, they suggest to rightify. You know, so now you get righteous, righteousness, rightify. You know, that kind of gives you the connection. In fact, I kind of like this translation. Because, you know, you know, because our intuition says, what does it mean to rightify? To rightify means to make something right which is getting at the basic concept of these three words. Right? The basic concepts of dikaiao, dikaios, and dikaiosune is really the state of rightness, the state of things as they should be. So dikaiao, to make things right, dikaios, describing something that is in a state of rightness, or a person or an action taken to make things right, and then dikaiosune, the state of things as they should be. I am not a neat freak. Okay, I'm not even neat. I, I actually have a high tolerance for mess. So in my house, every so often, there develops a phenomenon known as a sock convention. Yeah. This starts when I sit in my favorite comfy chair. I'm relaxing. You know, I'm, I'm you know, watching a football game. So I take my socks off and I kind of drop it next to my chair. And then somehow, 
the socks pile up. I think they breed. Serena coined the phrase sock convention. She doesn't like sock conventions. She doesn't think that socks have the right to peaceful assembly. So she tries to break up sock conventions. She, uh, she, she tries to um, t- break them up. She gets me to take the socks and put them in the upstairs laundry hamper. Um, in fact, she's the person who really put things back where they belong. Right? She, she's the one who's restoring the house to the place where it should be. So Serena is righteous. She is dikaios. Why? Because she takes action to rightify, to justify, to make right the house. And when she is done, we have a righteous house. Do you understand that? Do you see that? And so that raises the obvious big question. Why do we need to be justified? Why do we need to be made right? Well, Imagine you're an entrepreneur and, and you have opened up a, a string of successful restaurants. Okay, this is the thing, okay, think pre-COVID-19 world, okay? Okay, okay, imagine that. And you opened up a string of successful restaurants, and so now you get to a place and you, one day you decide, hey, I'm going to give control of one of my restaurants and have my kids run it. I'm going to give them the authority, I'm going to give them the ownership. But the idea is that you were always going to, you know, do this together. Right? They're going to come to you for advice, and you're going to give them training and your wisdom. And when their problems arise, well, you will work together. And your hope is that maybe doing this, you will all get closer together. Well, one day, your kids come to you and say, hey, mom and dad, yeah, you know, we have this restaurant now, and we really like to you know, basically ask you to stick, you know, stay out of this. We're smart. We know how to run the restaurant, and we're tired of your tired old ideas. Well, not surprisingly, you guys get into a huge fight. They run off, they stop talking to you, and they go and run the restaurant. And they run the restaurant into the ground. It's full of rats, the waste staff are rude, hardly any customers, it's hemorrhaging cash, and your kids spend all their time bickering over who's at fault. That's the story of our world. The Bible tells us that God created humans to run the world in partnership with him, in a loving community with God. But humans, we rebelled. We say, God, no, thank you. We're pretty smart. We can run the world ourselves. And we went ahead and did that, and we ran the world into the ground. We are broken people living in a broken world. Now, now, if you were one of the parents of of, of the kids, Right? You were somebody who actually made the restaurant, built the restaurant up. What would you do? I mean, one option, you could just give up, right? You can say, you know what? Let the restaurant go bankrupt, disinherit the kids, fine. But that's not you. Okay? Because you are a righteous parent. There's something inside you about fixing things, about making things right. These are your kids. You're not going to give up on them. You're going to fix your relationship with the kids. This is your restaurant. You built it. You poured your blood, sweat, and tears into this restaurant. You're going to make sure it's successful again. Our God is a righteous God. That's where every discussion about justification has to begin. Our God is a righteous God. He is a God who is committed to making things right. He likes fixing things. He likes restoring things. He likes making sure that everything turns out the way it's supposed to turn out. This is one of his core characteristics. Our God is committed. He will not quit. 
He is a righteous God. And there are two areas where he needs to make things right. He needs to fix. One of them is this this relationship thing, right? God and humans, we have a relationship problem, right? We rebelled, right? So, So there needs to be some way some way for us to be able to get to the point where we can say, okay, God, we're sorry. We, we, we apologize for about rebelling. We want to live under your rule now. We want to live under your values. And more importantly, there needs to be some way to make sure that we don't rebel again. And then on God's side, there needs to be some way for him to get to, hey, I forgive you all. You're my children. And of course, the other area is this world that we've broken. And if God wants us to be partners with him, then we need to get to a place where we stop messing up the world and we start bringing healing to the world. We need to become the kind of person who who stops doing destructive things like anger and selfishness and greed and start loving people and being humble and and, and self-sacrificing. We need to change. We need to be transformed. We need to be made right. We need need to be justified so that the world can be justified. To be justified is to be made right. And so everybody, everybody needs to be justified. What can do that? Let's get to the second phrase, works of the law. Let's go back to Paul. So Paul says, hey, we who are Jews, we're the Jewish ethnic, so Paul's Jewish, right? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. By the way, the Greek word there is ethne, from which we we get the word ethnicity. Basically, Gentiles are just all the non-Jewish ethnic groups, and they're sinful because they don't know God. So we who are Jews, not those guys, even we know that a person is not justified, not made right by the works of the law. Okay, what is the works of the law? Well, God gave the Jewish people a collection of writings. It's called the Hebrew Bible. Uh, We call it the Old Testament. Uh, The Hebrew Bible um, has a slightly different order of books, different from the Old Testament. And they also have a a, a, a threefold division. They divide the Bible into three sections. uh, The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. The first section, Genesis to Deuteronomy, those five books, they're called the Torah, and they are the important books. In a Jewish mindset, they have more authority than the other books. Now, now these these five books are called the Torah. Now, remember, Torah is a Hebrew word. When our New Testament writers, they're writing in Greek. So when they write about Torah, they use the word namos, which translates into English as law. Okay? You see that, right? So let me just make it really clear. Whenever you see the word law in your English Bible, in Galatians, now, in Galatians, Paul is talking about Torah. So really simply, if you have a paper Bible, go ahead and just cross off law in Galatians and put in Torah wherever you see it. So what is works of the Torah? Well, it's really simple. It's about obeying the Torah. You see, in the book, Genesis, books Genesis through Deuteronomy, there are a lot of rules, a lot of commandments, a lot of regulations. So works of the law means do them, follow them, follow the Torah. Okay. So, so Paul says, look, even we Jews 
who have the Torah and cherish the Torah, even we know that the Torah doesn't justify anybody, doesn't make anybody right. Now you notice, he doesn't make any argument. He doesn't argue for that. He just says, that's kind of obvious. You should just know that. Everybody knows that the Torah doesn't make anything right. How do we know that? The story of the Old Testament tells us that. When the Jewish people received the bulk of the regulations and commands, they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses was on the hill getting the commands, and guess what was going on down, down, down below? The, the, the people were rebelling against God, and they, and they created another idol, and they were going to follow that God. Complete disaster, massive failure. Moses comes down, brings down the law. They study it at the foot of Mount Sinai for a year, and then they take off, and what happens? Massive rebellion. This pattern just happens again and again and again and again. In fact, the story of the Old Testament can really be seen as the story of the Torah's failure to justify. Torah's failure to make anybody make anything right. And the problem with, of the Torah wasn't that, oh, it's too complicated. Some people say that. It's too complicated. That's not the problem. If you want to talk about complicated, read the IRS tax code. That's complicated. And, and you don't have accountants going, well, it's too complicated. We can't possibly keep it. No, that doesn't happen. Complicated was not the problem. Well, some people say, oh, you have all these rules nobody knows about. It's too obscure. So you end up with minor violations. That's not what the problem was. No, 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 no. In fact, here's the thing. Inside the Torah, inside the rules, there's a whole system of sacrifices designed for minor violations. Right? If you do something minor and you kind of made a mistake, hey, offer a sacrifice. It's all done. Fixed. No problem solved. No, the problem wasn't over complexity. The problem wasn't minor violations. No, the problem with the Torah is that it could not transform the human heart. And so the people of God in the Old Testament, they broke the most important commands. Not the minor ones. They broke the most important ones. They rejected God and worshiped other gods. And they oppressed the poor and the powerless in their society. And the Torah couldn't fix that. The Torah is a book of rules, and a book of rules cannot transform the human heart. Look, knowing right and wrong can't change us. We humans, there, there's something, something missing here, okay? There, there's something broken deep inside us so that we know what is right and can't do it. We know what is wrong, and we can't stop. I know that sock conventions are wrong. Serena's made it clear. So, look, I sit down after work. I'm, I'm watching the game. I take my socks off, and I go, and I just forget. Okay, I just lied. I don't forget. Uh, but what's going on is this, right? I'm like, I, I just had a long day of work, and I'm sitting here. It's so comfy. It's so relaxing. And, and the thought of having to get up, Climb the stairs all the way up to my bedroom and put my socks into the hamper. That just sounds impossible. I can't do that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the socks right there next to my chair. And uh, I'm going to pick them up when I get out of this chair. Okay? I am going to do that. That is what's going to happen, darn it. Yeah. Rules can't change us. We know that we're supposed to love God and love others as ourselves. Do we do it? No. We know we're, we're, that it's wrong to be egotistical and selfish and vain. Can we stop? No. Knowing what is right and what is wrong 
cannot change us because there's something broken deep inside the heart of every single one of us. And rules can't get anywhere near it. Following the rules in the Torah cannot make us right. <laughs> so what can, Paul? What can? We know that a person is not made right by following the rules in the Torah, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be made right by faith in Christ and not by following the Torah. It's faith, folks. It's faith. Now here at Black Hawk, we, we, we say this all the time. We say, hey, faith is not merely mentally agreeing with something. You know, like, oh, I believe God exists or I believe that Jesus is God. No, faith is to rely on something. So, I believe this chair exists. I believe that it can support my weight. But that's not faith. This is faith. Faith is put, to put your weight on something. It's to rely on something. So, this is where we need to make something pretty clear about faith. You see... It says here, we, are, we may be justified by faith in Christ. That this is the NIV 2011 translation. If you have an NIV that's kind of newer, a 2011 edition, if you go to verse 16, you will see a, a footnote A. Right? And if you follow that to the bottom of the page, you'll see something like this. It'll, it'll read, or, but through the faithfulness of dot, 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 justified on the basis of the faithfulness of. And you're going to be like, what does that mean? What is that trying to say? That doesn't make any sense. Well, what that footnote is actually trying to say is that a significant number of New Testament scholars in the NIV translation committee, they actually want to translate verse 16 differently. Okay? They want a different translation, and this is the translation they would prefer. We know that a person is not made right, justified, by works of the Torah, but cross this off, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ that we may be justified, made right on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ. What's the difference? Well, one of them is we are justified by our faith in Christ, right? Our faith in Christ. The other is we're justified by the faithfulness of Christ. Well, that sounds really different, doesn't it? That seems like a big deal. Which one is right? <laughs> and we get to one of those big topics in theology, huge impact on history, how you read this. Okay, so um, I'm just gonna say this. If you're interested, come to the webinar tomorrow night. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But what I'm gonna say right now is this. The text that's in the text that's in the, the part that's in the text, that translation, that, uh, that's more of a traditional translation. And what we're seeing is more and more New Testament scholars, they are moving toward going with the footnote. And I'm there as well. I think the footnote is correct. We are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus. And this is a big deal. But you think about it, right? What if we are justified by our faith? Think about that. 
Because some Christ followers say, no, 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 hey, you just, it's all about believing. It's about how hard you believe, right? You, you ask God for something. Well, you just got to keep on believing, keep on praying, and believe and never doubt. That's what it's all about. Faith is about how hard you believe. And if we are made right, if we're justified by our faith, I can kind of see that. I can see that it has to do with the quality of our faith. But if we are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus, well then, our faith simply taps us into Jesus and what he has done, his faithfulness. It's about Jesus, not about us. You've probably seen this picture before. This is a picture of U.S. Airways Flight 1547, piloted by Captain Chesley Sullenberger, or you may have seen the movie, Sully, starring Tom Hanks. The story of this flight, uh, they took off very quickly. Both engines sucked in birds. Both engines died. Without power, the plane turned around and landed in the Hudson River. It was a brilliant piece of piloting. It was called a miracle on the Hudson. Now, I want you to imagine being inside the cabin, okay? Being inside the cabin. Just kind of imagine the scenario. First of all, it's quiet, all right? The engines are gone, okay? It's quiet, which is not a good thing, right? It's really quiet in a really bad way, right? People are nervous, people are tense, people are panicking. But there was one passenger, she is superbly calm. She is like, I'm totally calm. And she's like, hey, everybody, listen up, listen up. She says, I know the captain. I know Captain Solenberger. I know the person flying this plane. He's a brilliant pilot. We're going to be just fine. We're going to be great. We're going to get out of this okay. Trust me, she said. Sitting next to her, another passenger, completely opposite. He is totally losing it. He's on the verge of breaking down. He's going, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm totally gone. I'm gone. One passenger had lots of faith. The other one had almost none. So tell me, which one was saved? Well, they both were. <laughs> they both were. Because salvation in this situation had nothing to do with the strength of their faith and everything to do with the courage and the competence and the skill of the flight crew. Okay? And now, now let, me, let me just extend the metaphor just a little bit. Because passenger number two wasn't entirely without faith. He actually had enough faith to get on that plane and to trust his life and put it into the hands of the pilot. So, yeah, he had faith. But once he got on the plane, once things got difficult, it didn't matter whether he was you know, confident or not. Because it was not about his faith. It was about the skills of the pilot's. We have to understand this. It is not about our faith. It is about the faithfulness of Jesus. Once we put our faith into the faithfulness of Jesus, it is not about how hard we believe. It is not about whether we believe and never doubt. No, 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 no. It all rests on Jesus and the faithfulness of Jesus. So that raises the big question. If the Torah a rule book given by God to his people cannot transform, cannot make his people right. What is it about the faithfulness of Jesus that makes us right? What can Jesus do for us that the Torah cannot? Whew. And now we get to the heart of this. We get to the really exciting part. Okay, this is so exciting. Okay, so let's, let's get to verse 20. Okay. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ Christ. 
and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness, if rightness, if being made right could be gained through the Torah, Christ died for nothing. Jesus' death on the cross was his act of faithfulness. Actually, no, 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 no. His entire life was an act of faithfulness. His entire incarnation, becoming human, giving away his glory and honor and prestige and joining us, becoming one of us, was a supreme act of faithfulness, an act of solidarity, expressing his deep righteousness, his intense commitment to make the world right. And this faithful righteousness created a new possibility where, where Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, I can, I can join, I can join Jesus on the cross, right? Which means I'm also dead. I died with him. I no longer live. Oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm dead. I'm still alive, all right? I'm living right now. I'm, I'm, I'm alive right now. So there's got to be something different about this life. This life is, is, is a different kind of life. It's a new life. It's a life in which Jesus lives in me. It's the life of Jesus now. You see that, right? We join Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Now, this is not a metaphor, folks. This is a reality for every one of us who follows Jesus. This is true of us. Paul says, when we put our faith into Jesus' faithfulness, Okay. We are transformed. We engage in a new way of existence. We have a life that is an eternal spiritual union with Christ. Now, union with Christ. This is a huge topic. It is central to what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, almost every sermon in the rest of the series is going to be kind of struggling with, kind of working out the implications of what it means to be united with Jesus. So today, I'm gonna, so I've been talking about justification, so I'm gonna focus on that, okay? So, obvious question. How does union with Christ justify us? How does union with Christ make us right? Well, remember, there are two areas that need to be justified, that God needs to make right. One is God and us. Our relationship needs to be fixed. So, how do you think I'm doing with God? I am in Jesus, Jesus is in me. How do you think I'm doing? Do you think my sins are forgiven? How do you think the Father, God the Father thinks about me? When, when God the Father looks at G me, he sees Jesus. How do you think I'm doing with God? I say I'm doing pretty dang good. I say I'm rocking it with God. Now, the, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal, folks. Okay, listen up. Some of us, you, you're, you struggle with a sense of guilt. You struggle with this deep sense of darkness. You feel like nothing can claim you. You feel, like, you feel like God looks at you and he just turns away. Well, if you are united with Jesus, that is simply not true. Okay? Because you can freely walk into the very presence of God and God looks at you and he would just embrace you because you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you. Our union with Christ justifies our relationship with God. Okay, what about the other area? 
right? transformation, becoming the people that God can partner with to fix the world. Well, now I'm going to say something that might make you feel a little better about me, think a little better about me. Um, I would say in recent years, there have been fewer instances of sock conventions. Yeah, well, Serena might disagree, but I think so. And it's not, it's not anything overt or kind of like kind of a you know, big shift. It's just more one of those things where when you live with people, you kind of rub off on each other, right? And we, Serena and I have been married 27 years, and, and it, you kind of just have an impact on each other. I would say that I am a little less messy than I used to be, and I would say Serena is more tolerant of messes than she used to be. That's just what happens when you live with people day in and day out. Now, union with Christ goes deeper than a marriage relationship. Serena is my best friend. She, she is my closest confidant. She, she's my favorite person in the world. But I would never say, I no longer live and Christ lives, you know, Serena lives in me. I, I would never say that because that's simply not true. But I would say that about Jesus. Union with Christ goes deeper than a marriage relationship. So think about what union with Christ is doing with us, doing for us right now. Do you really think being united with Jesus would leave us unchanged, untransformed? Do you really think a lifetime of interacting and relating with Jesus spread out over decades is not going to change how we live our life, how we work, how we go to school, how we have relationship with people, how we spend our money? Union with Christ, relationship with Christ, will change us, will transform us, will make us right, will justify us. And in the process, it is the only thing that will make the world right. All right. Let me see if I can tie everything together here. The Jewish leaders of the first century, the church leaders of the first century, they said to the Gentiles, hey, you got to follow the Torah just like us. And, And Paul says, why would you do that? Why would you bother with that? The Torah is a book of rules, and a book of rules can't get to the heart of our woundedness, that place deep inside of us where we are broken. Can't do anything about it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Only a new form of life, a new way of being, a human united with God can begin the healing. Only union with Christ via his death and his resurrection. Only a lifetime of relationship, of dynamic living experience of Jesus can transform us, can make us right. Today, I, right now, I want, to, I want us to enter into a time of prayer and, and contemplation. I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your head and just listen to the sound of my voice. You've heard a lot today. You, you heard about our need to be made right. You heard about faith. It's about our faith, our, our faith, not, not our faith, but faithfulness of Jesus. You, you heard about book of rules and whether, how can, that can or cannot affect us. And you heard about union with Christ and whether that concept is familiar to you or not. There's a lot to think about here. So I want you to spend some time thinking and praying about that while I talk to a, a kind of a particular group of people who are listening right now. Those of you who are, Christ, who are not yet Christ followers, and you've been checking things out, you've been thinking, today is a really good talk for you because we're getting at the foundational concept of Christian faith. Right? You know. So today I want to invite you 
right, as you're listening, to make a decision to follow Jesus. You know the brokenness of your world. You know the brokenness of your own soul. And you know, you know that philosophies and religions, they, they really can't fix it. Morality, self-help can't get anywhere near it. Only faith. Trust in the faithfulness of Jesus, the Son of God who loves us and gave himself up for us and died for us on the cross so that we can be united with him. And when we are united with him, <laughs> we are forgiven, we are accepted, and we are embraced by God. And on top of that, we are transformed. Because it's not a book of rules, it is a dynamic living relationship with Jesus. If that's what you want right now, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. And, and if you can just pray it in your head or pray it out loud wherever you are. It's a simple prayer. Father, I know I am broken. I wanna be made right. I know I am broken. I want to be forgiven, and I want a new life. So, right now, I put my trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. I put my trust in what he has done for me on the cross so that I can be in him and he can live in me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for all of us, for those of us who are Christ followers, what Paul says about himself in verse 20 is true for every single one of us. So right now, go ahead and open your eyes and look at the screen. Um, look at this verse. We're gonna close by reading this verse together. And remember, this is true of who we are. This is us. Let's read. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And all God's people said, Amen.